Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanorkas, and this is the Autosport Podcast. In February this year, Ferrari announced that it would return to the pinnacle of sports car racing in the World Endurance Championship with a new Le Mans hypercar in 2023. Despite its half-century away from competing for overall victory at Le Mans, the Italian mark is still the third most successful constructor in the history of the famous French endurance event, with nine overall victories behind only Porsche and Audi. To celebrate Ferrari's impending return to Le Mans, this week's Autosport magazine includes a dedicated feature ranking what we consider to be the 10 best Ferrari Le Mans cars, written by our chief editor, Kevin Turner. And I'm delighted to say that once again for this week's magazine accompaniment podcast, Kev is joining me. How are you, Kev? Very good, thank you. Yes, I thought I was all out of wine and then my wonderful wife appeared just before the podcast with with a bottle. So I'm now, uh, yeah, I'm, I've now got the fuel that I require uh, and I'm quite looking forward to this one. A little bit anxious as well because our other guest is very knowledgeable. So yes, we've, we've, we, he, he's been on a few of these top tens before. We, we normally agree, but I think this one could be a bit more tricky. Well, indeed, indeed. I, I'm rather hoping that our, our special guest will, will be grilling your choices in terms of the top ten that you've chosen. Uh, so we should really introduce him, one of Britain's leading motorsport commentators. It's Ian Titchmarsh, debate Kev's top ten. So how are you doing, Ian? I'm doing fine, thanks very much, up here in the Wirral. And uh, good evening to you, Alex. Good evening to Kevin. Uh, and we'll have an interesting debate, I think, about the best ten Ferraris. Ferrari heading back to Le Mans. Why is that so intriguing? Why is that such uh, an enticing prospect for motorsport fans? Well, I think, first of all, obviously, Ferrari is one of the biggest, arguably the biggest names in the automotive world and in motorsport. And I think everyone's excited to see what they're doing. Everyone wants them to do better in F1. And I think sports car fans have been waiting for this moment for a very long time. You know, I think since I was a, a kid and first learned about Le Mans, I've been waiting for Ferrari to come back with a proper effort. Uh, in the top class, um, and I think for sort of maybe younger fans, they don't they can't they don't remember how important Ferrari was to Le Mans and how important Le Mans was to Ferrari in the early days. You know, the win at Le Mans in 1949 that we'll get to is you know one of the first big Ferrari successes, um, and through the 50s and 60s, you know Enzo Ferrari, um, you know, he made winning Le Mans one of the absolute priorities. To the frustration of some of its F1 drivers, I'm mean, John Surtees was not best pleased that his F1 program never seemed to get going until Le Mans was won. So, really big, important thing for Ferrari, important for Le Mans, and and the two just seem to seem to be right together. Even though it's been such a long time since we've seen a, a proper factory effort in the top class. Seems to me as though Ferrari were the the opposition in the 1950s and early 60s. You used to listen to Raymond Baxter on his broadcasts from uh, Le Mans, these wretched Ferraris that were beating the Jaguars at times and also the Aston Martin. So 
unlike later generations who don't remember Ferrari winning. They were doing it all the time when I was a schoolboy. And, and Ian, how did you react when you heard the news that Ferrari was finally coming back to compete at the front in, at Le Mans? I think the modern type of Le Mans car I find difficult to associate with Ferrari. Now, maybe the hypercars are going to be what sort of cars should be raced at Le Mans. For me, Ferrari in the last many decades really has been all about GT racing or Formula One. Um, let's kick it off, Kev, rather obviously in a top 10 with number 10. It's the 550 Maranello, run by ProDrive. Uh, key years 2002 to 2004, with best results, uh, GTS class win and 10th overall in 2003 and finishing 9th overall in 2004. So, why is that car at number 10? Well, I'm hoping Ian will quite like this then, given that he feels that Le Mans for B, for B, should be for GT cars, which I think is a fantastic uh, start of a separate debate altogether. But... Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Let's be honest. The Ferrari have had lots, lots of very successful GT cars in recent years. Yeah, the four eight eight has been their current car. The four five eight before that. The four thirty. You know, they've won their class of GT two and then GTE. Uh, but for me, they're a bit. I mean, there's been some fantastic racing as well. Great drivers, but they're just oh, they're not quite. They don't. They don't quite do enough for me. Those cars. Whereas the the sort of GT one era cars, the front engined rear-wheel drive cars, which I think are a kind of a throwback to those 1960s GTs that, that we'll get to later. Um, yeah, the, 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 the Dodge Viper was probably the first, and then the, the 550, which was developed by ProDrive without Ferrari backing, um, is, you know, it came in um, fantastic-looking car, very successful, defeated the Corvettes at Le Mans in its second year. It also won the FIA uh, GT1 championship. Very successful car. Um, and the sort of nice little aside to this story is that when Gary Watkins did a piece on Aston Martin recently, he spoke, spoke to David Richards and, and, and the ProDrive project was, they were very close to doing a Ferrari project until Luca de Montezemolo basically said, we're not having Ferraris built in Britain. Uh, at which point that, that idea ceased and ProDrive ended up with the Aston Martin gig with the DBR9 in 2005. Uh, which uh, is an era that has only just finished. So very important car, very cool car. Um, and yeah, for me, it just trumped the the mid-engined supercars that we've seen in more recent years because I just thought it was a bit cooler, which I appreciate is a subjective thing rather than an objective one. I do much prefer it to the 458, the, the, the subsequent mid-engine cars, the sort of car you could imagine driving across France down to Nice or Monaco or wherever it might be. Absolute Grand Routier classic. Let's move on to number nine. It's the 250 GT Berlinetta. Key years in 1960-61. Best results for GT win and fourth overall in 1960 and the GT class win and third overall in 1961. Kev, why is this car at number nine? It probably gets overshadowed by the the GTO, uh, which we'll, we'll come to later, which is kind of, I guess, almost arguably the most desirable Ferrari. But actually, the GT Berlinetta was the car to have in GT racing for for those two years 60 and 61 um and uh, in the, in 1961 as I, I put in the piece um graham hill and sterling moss in the north american racing team entry although it was rob in rob walker colors was actually able to mix it with the the fastest of the sport or very nearly the fastest of the sports prototypes i think they got up to fourth before they dropped out um, now, okay, you've got two of the fastest best drivers in the world at that moment in the car, so obviously you've got to factor that in. But there were some pretty handy drivers in the prototypes as well. Um, so, and in a car that this will appear to appeal to Ian as well, in a car that could be driven on the road, a genuine, a genuine GT machine, uh, and it also it harks back to the sort of G250 GT line of Ferraris that went back to sort of the early mid fifties. So it's kind of almost the uh, it sort of sums up a whole load of cars in one go for me. This one. For me, one of the, the, the great races I remember watching was the 1960 Taurus Trophy. Uh, sorry, 61 Taurus Trophy at Goodwood. Mike Parks in the Marinella Concessionaire 250 GT Berlinetta and Sterling Moss in, in this car. I know it was entered at Le Mans by North American Racing Team, but it's actually the car that uh, Dick Wilkins owned uh, and Rob Walker ran for him normally. Uh, and yes, he got up to fourth place and could have, uh, it was a relatively small problem that forced its retirement. Uh, incredibly quick car and absolutely the sort of car that Le Mans was originally designed for you don't have to live in the past but this car uh, you could drive on the road you could drive it to Le Mans and if you look back at earlier cars not just Ferraris but Jaguars and Aston Martins they were driven on the road uh, and then driven in Le Mans the D-type Jaguars were driven to the circuit and then raced and then won and then uh, driven back home again it looks great it did great things it was not just a star at Le Mans, it was a star in the Tour de France, which is a mixture of races and 
rally type stages and hill climbs. To me, it should be number one or number two. This guy is just brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't disagree with anything that Ian says there, apart from where he thinks this car should be at the very end. But um, yeah, a, f- a fantastic car, and, and actually, fair play to the good Goodwood Revival as well for bringing in the Kinrara Trophy in the last few years, which has allowed the 250 GT Berlinetta to feature a bit more highly, and a few more of them have come out because they've become outclassed in the in the RAC Tourist Trophy races. So um, yeah, we can actually see 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 them again now. Given the choice, would you have a GTO or a GT Berlinetta? I mean, a few years ago, I'd have just said the the GTO. I think it's a it's probably a marginally better looking car, possibly. But I think now I probably have a greater appreciation for the for the Berlinetta. So if yeah, I probably I would probably go for the Berlinetta now if I had the money. Find yourself a photograph of the start of the nineteen sixty Torres Trophy when uh, they had the about there were about five or six enters. And they were all lined up in echelon. There were a couple of Aston Martins in amongst them as well, because it was based on practice time. Uh, and uh, he had all these glorious 250 GT Berlinettas lined up. They weren't called SWBs in those days. They were called what they really are, 250 GT Berlinettas. Uh, and it, it's a, a wonderful sign. You need to dig that out of the Autosport archives, the LEP archives. Um, it, it, it was magnificent. They, they, they just look purposeful, but they look as though they could be driven quickly on the road as well as on the racetrack. Well, let's move on to, Kev, your number eight pick. It is the 250 GTO. It's key years, 1962 to 1964. Best results, GT win and second overall in 1962 and GT win and second overall in 1963. So why is that at number eight? Uh, I'll be honest, initially didn't have this in the list, which to some Ferrari fans, that would be just absolutely sacrilegious, I'm sure. So I I didn't have it in there initially, partly because by the time the GTO came along, I just don't think Ferrari had an awful lot of opposition, uh, which we'll get to in, with some of the other cars on this list as well. Aston Martin were no longer quite so seriously involved. Jaguar didn't throw things at the E-Type in the way that Ferrari did with its GT programme. And as I'm sure Ian will come to, the 250 GTO was definitely pushing the limit of uh, of, of what a GT should be. I mean, I was for Monogato and Enzo Ferrari tried to, I think, argue that it was a continuation of the... Uh, 250 GT Berlinetta line which was perhaps a little bit optimistic as well although he did get away with it the reason it got back into the list uh, was when I looked at it uh, I mean first of all it is one of the most desirable Ferraris of all time uh, uh, you know it uh, it would appear in any list of, of people's greatest Ferraris I would say with possible exception of Ian <laughs> um, but also it's overall results at Le Mans this was specifically a Le Mans list and when I looked at it, it, it twice won the GT class and was second overall, beaten only by a prototype. On that basis, I, I decided that it needed to it needed to slot in. But by that time, you really touched on the fact, Kevin, that by that time, the opposition to the sports racing Ferraris wasn't that strong, was it? So you no, don't get no. the, GT, the best of the GT cars finishing very high up. I think one of the great shames of the early 60s, actually, is that Maserati and Aston Martin didn't have... Uh, well, more funding really, and more cars to put on the grid because the the one five one, which is a monstrous thing, and Project two one two Aston Martin, which we fortunately see in out racing historics quite a lot over the years, those two cars did have the potential. In fact, two one two led uh, and ran towards the front of the one in sixty two, but there was only one of them. If younger fans think of Porsches filling the grid in sports car races and GT races, back in the 60s, the Ferrari were a bit like that at, that at times with significant portions of the field. So just by law of, of numbers, really, they were always likely to, to end up at the front. But um, but yeah, you know, GTO finishing second overall twice meant that it had to be sort of among the top cars on this list that didn't actually win overall. But they were taken to the circuit on a truck. They weren't driven there. The opposition to them whether it's the Maseratis or the Aston Martins, wasn't anything like the strength that the two GT Berlinetta had to go with and other cars later, or, or the, the 550 Marinello had a lot of competition as well. Compare with the, the GTO um, is, is a great-looking car, but I'm almost feeling as though it's, it's not... It's, well, I, I am feeling, not almost. I do feel it is not as charismatic a car, I'm afraid. And almost you said this, Kevin. Uh, as as the 250 GT Berlinetta. Let's move on to Kevin number seven pick. It's the Ferrari 330 TRI LM. Now this is the first Ferrari Le Mans winner that you've got on your list. It's key years uh, being active 1962 to 1963, winning in 62. So why is this at number seven? 
Well, initially it was higher up because I my very sort of start point was oh well, let's stick all the Ferrari winners in in at the top, the best that uh, didn't win sort of behind, and then sort of gradually evolve it, looking at their results and looking at the individual races more clearly. And this kept falling down places. Um, so it was a it was a one off based on a 250 Testarossa chassis, but it was lengthened. It had a bigger engine, and I think probably Ian will agree with me. It was uglier as well. Uh, so it's oh, not. It's one of the worst looking cars in the list, Kevin. I completely agree. It, if this was a best looking list, this car would get absolutely nowhere near it. However, it is one of the most dominant Le Mans winners. Well, I was going to say on the list, but actually in in history, it took the lead on lap two at Le Mans in 1962. They did have a bit of a uh, bit of a challenge from the Rodriguez brothers uh, in a two four six SP. Feel where Oliver Gondomier completely dominated the race. He'll set the fast lap, finally breaking the lap record of Mike Hawthorne set five years before. So it was a really dominant winner. So it kind of had to be in the list somewhere, but I knocked it down for the reasons that we just mentioned about the GTO, really, which was the opposition was was pretty minimal. Ferrari entered an, an array of different models. Uh, with different engine configurations and front engine and mid engine for that race, uh, so they're always likely to win, really. And the one that did was the one with the biggest engine and the most experienced driver pairing, so that's why it slipped down the list. But I thought, as a winner and a dominant winner at that, it, it had to be represented. What was it? Who was it dominating apart from the Rodriguez brothers? That's kind of the point, isn't it? That's why it's in seventh. But then you, you know, there have been periods in Le Mans history where one manufacturer has been left to it. You know, I suggest the Audi R8 uh, was left to have its have it its own way for quite a, a lot of the time. But yeah, you've also got to be in it to win it, haven't you? So uh, I wouldn't di- I wouldn't exclude it on the basis that it didn't have serious opposition. But I I sort of penalised it because of that. There was no strong opposition. So if you had a little bit of opposition, it was bound to win the race as long as it had reliability and kept out of problems. Yeah, I, I put it 10. Probably worth pointing out, he did also qualify on pole the following year as well, But by which time there were some more modern Ferraris up against uh, up against it. It obviously was a, a quick piece of kit, even though I completely agree it's definitely one of the ugliest Ferraris, uh, well, on this list, but probably that's ever been to Le Mans. <laughs> well, I was, gonna, yeah, uh, I was just going to say that part of the... Uh, DNA of a Ferrari is its appearance, isn't it? And if a car doesn't look, a Ferrari doesn't look right, it can't be a top-class Ferrari. I do imagine, though, a four-litre V12 would have probably sounded pretty awesome down the Mulsanne. I imagine it probably sounded good, but I do take your point. Okay, let's move on to number six. It's the three one two PB. Key years nineteen seventy one to seventy three, scoring a best result of second in nineteen seventy three. Kev, why is that at number six? Well, I'll be interested to see what Ian thinks of this. I mean, I love the the, the sports prototypes of the late sixties and early seventies. They're for me what what Le Mans is about. You know, my favourite racing car is the Porsche nine one seven. So, I mean, that's where we're that that's where I'm coming from. And the three one two PB was one of those that climbed up slightly, and it was yeah, generally known as the three one two PB because of the existence of the sixty nine three one two P, which was a different car. So, um, Ferrari kind of gave up on the five one two, the big five litre car. Um, against Porsche and decided to develop the three litre car in 1971, uh, ready for the three litre regulations that were coming in 72. Now, in 1972, that worked and they won every race in the World Championship that they entered against Alfa Romeo. Sorry, Ian, no, you're an Alfa fan, but Ferrari thrashed them in 72. But they didn't do Le Mans. No, that's not the right word. They beat them. Yeah. Uh, they were they were they were pummeled into submission. <laughs> um, but, but they didn't go to Le Mans and Matra, who didn't do the championship, won, went to Le Mans and, and won. Um, and so they yeah, they kind of missed each other. In 1973, they both did the World Championship and they both did Le Mans, and it was a real you know, real good, proper fight between two major sports car manufacturers of the day. Matra ended up winning more more often than not, won the championship, but the 24-hour race was, was, was really quite a close one. The lead went backwards and forwards. Ferrari's qualified on the front row, um, and uh, one or other of their cars led most of the time. Um, uh, and it and it, it was basically one car would hit a problem, another one would move to the front, and it was back and forth the whole way. And even with an hour and a half to go, the Jackie X Brian Redmond car, which is perhaps predictably the one that was uh, kind of in the fight towards the end, given the given those two drivers, um, was still in with an outside shout when its uh, when its engine blew and it left it left Matra to win uh, win the race uh, with Henri Pascal and Gerard Larousse, uh, Larousse and uh, leaving Arturo Mazzario and Carlos Parche to finish second uh, for Ferrari and that's the last time that we had a factory assault 
for the overall Le Mans victory. Um, so a kind of heroic failure, if you like. Um, but I just thought it was a, a, a cool car and up against some proper opposition. Uh, oh, I totally agree with what you say, everything you say. Was it he- except query whether it was heroic failure? Was it a failure? It didn't win, but it had a fine battle with the matches to try and win. Um, and as you just said, it's, it's the last, what you might call, serious Ferrari worst attempt to, um, to win Le Mans overall. Yes, um, I, I will take that amendment I, because heroic failure is the phrase I should definitely reserve for a car higher up this list. So yes, it did fail. I will, I will definitely <laughs> accept that amendment. But it was a great era of 3D to prototype, whether it was Matra uh, or Ferrari or Alfa Romeo, Cosworth, CFE engine cars as well. With proper drivers, be both Matra and Ferrari loaded their cars with top-class Formula 1 drivers uh, So uh, and top-class sports car drivers. Absolutely agree with you. Well, and number five, we've got the Ferrari 375 Plus, key year being 1954, where it won Le Mans. Kev, why is that a number five? Oh, I had real trouble knowing where to place this car. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a... What's the word I'm looking for? It is a bit of a sort of a sledgehammer. Uh, certainly not one of the prettier cars. Not as ugly, I don't think, as the 62 car, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's quite a big old beast. I have actually seen one racing at Goodwood, and it does make quite an impression. It certainly has presence. Um, and the reason, the reason it's hard up here, partly it's because it did win, and it also won against some proper opposition... Um, there were some pretty uh, decent f- works and efforts from Aston Martin and Cunningham, but chiefly it was the first Le Mans for the Jaguar D-Type, which obviously went on to be quite handy in the 24 hours. Uh, and it was three 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 seven five pluses, uh, five litre V12 up against the three uh, Jaguar D-Types. And the Ferraris were a bit quicker in the dry, unless you had Sterling Moss in the D-Type, which is, you know, you could say that about lots of cars during that era. But the Ferraris hit problems, the Jaguars hit problems, and it, it boiled down to a fight between Gonzalez and Trantignol in, in the Ferrari and, and 1953 winners Tony Rolt and Duncan Hamilton in the D-Type. Uh, and it rained a lot during the race. And when it was really bad, the Jaguar tended to close in. I think if you read different accounts of the race, there's quite a, a difference of opinion in just how bad Trantignol was in the car um, from OK to awful. It, whichever way you look at it, Gonzalez did the heavy lifting, quite literally the heavy lifting, because it was a big old car and he was a, a big old driver. Uh, and he was absolutely shattered by the end of the race, dragged the car uh, across after some... It, it struggled to fire from pit stops several times. Um, so if I was doing a list of greatest Gonzalez drives, which actually I should do, I was going to make a note that I can do that and then I can debate that with Ian as well, um, this would be on it because I think he probably won it for Ferrari. Um, but ultimately, the car did win Le Mans. It did beat the D-Type, and um, it then went on to win the Carrera Panamericana and clinch the World Sports Car Championship for Ferrari. So, I, I did. I felt I had to put it in there somewhere, but it it was floating around fifth or sixth. Where did you read the rubbishing of Maurice Trantignol in contemporary reports or subsequent? Oh, contemporary writing. reports. Yes, I couldn't remember. I couldn't tell you which publication it was off the top of my head. It wasn't Autosport. Autosport's report didn't uh, do that. Yeah, I, I, I don't have it in front of me. I'll have to I'll have to dig that one out to where it's from. But the argument was that Trantignol would lose time in the wet to the Jaguar, whereas Gonzalez could hold it or even edge away a little bit, depending on how tr- how dry the track was. My reading of Gonzalez is that he was probably is one of the under, underrated great fifties drivers. Um, on his day, he could beat you know the likes of Fangio, whereas Trantignol was a obviously a very safe pair of hands. But I don't think he was ever a top notch. Never a top-notch Formula 1 drive. Won a couple of Grand Prix when everyone else fell out. Um, and, and, a, and a person you'd happily have doing a stint at Le Mans. But I don't think he was the guy that was going to turn in the, the Superman stint to win the race for you. If Gonzalez hadn't been driving the Ferrari, they wouldn't have won the race. If it had been trying to plus A, another Ferrari driver. Uh, the car itself, and although it may not look the most beautiful, it's, I don't think it's that ugly. There's a certain presence about it, um, which exudes volumes of what the Ferraris were in the 1950s. Uh, it shouldn't have won them all, because it should have been disqualified because they cheated and they had too many people working on the car. Well, we are coming towards the sharp end of Kev's list. Uh, in at number four, it's the Ferrari 330 P4, key year of 1967, when it finished second at Le Mans. So Kev, what's the case for this car being at number four on your list? I'm not going to hold back. This is my favourite Ferrari in any in any category. I think it's probably the 
I, I did a list of the best looking Le Mans cars a couple of years ago, and like even been last year. And it really, it came down to this versus the Aston Martin DBR1. Uh, they both, I think, they're fantastic looking cars. And uh, I'll put the Ferrari 330p4 um, first. There's just so many things I like about it. I like the fact that, you know, Ford came at Le Mans with this ridiculous over the top assault, huge amounts of money, loads of resources, loads of people. Took them three years to win it. They did, you know, in 1966, they did knock Ferrari off off its perch finally uh, with the, the GT Mark IIs. Uh, seven liter V8 things, and uh, Ferrari came out with this this jewel of a, a P4, four liter, three valve cylinder head, just a real proper um, ultimate line of the P series, I think. Um, and uh, and it was better than the Mark II Fords. You know, they went to Daytona and and Ferrari thumped them for Ford there. Um, I think perhaps with hindsight that was a mistake because that did uh, that did rather encourage Ford to to press on with the the j car development which became the mark IV once shelby's crew got hold of it and, and and sorted it out and they ran it at sebring and and completely destroyed the mark ii opposition ferrari would ferrari didn't go to that race um so um it meant that when they went to le mans ford had the the performance advantage again and they went there with a you know ridiculously over the top seven car assault with seven liter cars plus a whole load of other support acts uh, with smaller cars and Ferrari had three P4s plus another one for the Belgian uh, Belgian squad uh, and thanks to a bit of bad luck and a, a multi-car accident Ford very nearly lost um, it was only uh, Dan Gurney and AJ Foyt who, who drove a very sensible race I had the pleasure of talking to Dan Gurney about it a few years ago uh, because a lot of the contemporary reports claimed that he'd uh, that they'd been the hair of the Ford operation, but he said no. We just we we from the very start we were looking after the brakes, looking after the car. We just the car was so well set up we could do the lap times without having to thrash it, and they just kept going and going and going. And and Ferrari um, ups the uh, up the ante in the second half of the race with its two remaining healthy cars, but they just couldn't force the force the Ford into braking. Um, Gurney and Foyt won at a record speed. Ferrari finished second and third, um, having covered a greater distance than any Le Mans Ferrari up to that point. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is my idea of a sort of heroic failure because they were up against the odds and they almost pulled it off. Uh, and then just as a nice little um, uh, sort of um, finale to that, um, Ferrari did win the, the, the World Sports Car Championship. Jackie Stewart was drafted in for Brands Hatch the final round. And he he told me um, that it was the best one of the best handling cars he ever drove around Brands Hatch, and he finished second behind the high wing Chaparral to clinch the championship for Ferrari. So fabulous car, won a championship, didn't quite win Le Mans, um, but yeah, I had to have it high on the list. Yeah, well, I was at that Brands Hatch race uh, at, when Jackie Stewart drove the car with, with Chris Amon, wasn't it? It was. And, he, um, he wasn't very well, it, apparently. Jackie Stewart didn't drive Ferraris very often. He did drive a two seven five LM as well, didn't he, in Australia? But um, it, 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 it's, everything you say it is it, it, it's just a, a wonderful looking car uh, epitomising 1960s um, prototype Ferraris uh, and when you sit, sit as long as I, this is not knocking the Ford I'm just simply saying the Ferrari just looks as though it was made by craftsmen uh, it was it, a beautiful design it's great it's a work of art um, difficult to say that the Ford Mark is a work of art. Well, um, I, I, it's a very effective machinery. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I think the 1967 grid is one of well, I think it's one of the strongest in terms of driver lineup. I also think, and this is obviously a very subjective thing, I think it's one of the best looking grids. I think the Mark IV, um, I wouldn't say it's beautiful, but I think it's a it's a striking car. The Mark II obviously had presence. The Chaparral's incredible piece of kit. The Lola T70s that were there. I mean, unfortunately, they didn't last very long, but that's a fantastic looking car. And the P4s as well. What a fantastic grid! I would definitely that would be in the in a, in a a candidate for if I had a time machine, I'd like to go back and see the start of that race. I don't think any of the other cars get anywhere near to the the P4. I mean, they, they they look good. Take the P fours away, and you'd have a, a good looking grid. You've got to have the P four. It, it is just such a glorious looking car. Uh, and I, I go along with yes, it was a heroic failure. In a way, I mean, it, it, it was up against the seven liter Ford, and to come second was, was a great achievement. Well, we're now up to number three in your list, Kev. It's the one six six MM key year nineteen forty nine, and Ferrari wins. Why is it a number three? So this is kind of almost the opposite to the P4, really, in that I think it's quite a it's quite a modest looking car. It's quite neat, 
certainly for its time, um, when you think a lot of the cars would have been harking back to pre-war designs. Um, but it's very significant. It's, um, you know, it, 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 very few manufacturers or constructors win on their Le Mans debut, and even fewer when they're that young. Ferrari was still a young constructor. Okay, Enzo Ferrari had been involved in motorsport for a long time by this point. Um, but they were two privately entered cars. Both of them were competitive with the bigger engine, Delahays, Talbot Largos, Delages, right from the start. They were very quick. Um, and Luigi Shinetti obviously went on to be head of, um, of the NART team. He um, he did 22 of the 24 hours, so it's kind of got a bit of a sort of legendary drive element to it as well. Um, and yeah, just just basically winning on the debut on on, the, on Ferrari's debut at Le Mans, and really kind of starting um, starting off the legendary and a private entry, which of course is also how Ferrari won its last took its last Le Mans win. Yeah, the car's predecessor, which was sort of quite closely related, the 166S, won the Targa Florio. Then this car also won the Emilia Emilia. And the follow-up, the 2.3-litre 195S, uh, was rapid the following year. So it's just a really uh, impressive start to Ferrari's story at Le Mans, really. It wasn't exactly Ferrari's first racing car. Uh, he had been building, I don't mean for Alfa Romeo before the war, but um, after he started his own business in the uh, mid-40s after the war, he was pretty good at building good cars. Um, it was the private entry, Luigi Cunetti, uh, a very, very close relationship with Enzo Ferrari. Uh, and I would have thought there was a fair amount of, uh, I know it was owned by Lord Sells, but uh, he, he would have had a lot of help from whatever the factory, the Ferrari factory amounted to in those days. Um, yeah, I, I can't get sufficiently excited about it, partly because it looks like an early AC8 as well. I know the AC8 was copied from the Ferrari. There's not a huge difference between them. Tinetti wasn't the only person to drive nearly the whole distance. The following year, uh, Louis Rosier uh, did all but half an hour of the race um, in his Tabo Lago. I know we're not talking about the best uh, Le Mans Tabo Lago, but um, driving a long way of the race, long part of the race, wasn't unusual in those days. Um, so it's too high for me. It's a nice, it's a nice little car, which he says is not meant to be patronising. Um, it is a nice little car, but it's too high um, to be third. Yeah, it wouldn't be this high on my list of. Uh, if you to go back to your previous question about which ones would I want to buy in my uh, <laughs> in my sort of um, dream garage, it wouldn't it wouldn't be that high. But I just I just felt it's 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 something that. Not by you, Ian, of course, but by many people would tend to get a bit overlooked. Um, and I thought, you know, the the the, the first winner uh, deserved to be, you know, deserved to be, you know, ho- quite high up, even though it didn't have the, you know, perhaps the presence um, or the long term success that some of the other cars on this list um, do have. I mean, some of the, you, you mentioned that some of the cars that it was um, racing against, well, they're all pre-war cars, operated to some extent in one or two cases, but uh, th- this was a proper post-war car, the two-litre Ferrari. Um, but it was racing against, on the whole, amateur drivers, in on the whole, designs that were 10 years old. Well, I think um, Ian, when we, when we get through all, all of the ten entries, we'll uh, we'll get we'll end on your thoughts on Kev's list overall. I think that'll be a, a nice ending there. Um, but what I'm going to do now is introduce the top two entries. But Kev has cheekily actually got three cars in here. He'll explain why. Um, but I will I'll introduce them together because then that it helps. You know, we've done this before in the podcast. It just helps the explanation of of why they're in this particular order. So number two is the Ferrari 250P slash the 275P. Key years being 1963 to 1964, winning Le Mans on both occasions. But at number one, it's the Ferrari 250 Testarossa. Key years 1958 to 1961, winning in 1958, 60, and 61. So Kev, why are these cars in this order? Uh, so as Ian has already demonstrated, this is definitely been one of the hardest lists to do. And then picking and picking the first the first couple was really tricky. And in the end, I did lean towards as it was a Le Mans list as opposed to just a sports car list. Um, so the the Testarossa, you know, ha- has to take it on the basis it's three wins in four years, um, and it it could have it, it could have won the fourth one as well. Um, while the rest of the Ferrari team crumbled. Hill and Gondobian did their usual thing of keeping the car going and actually were out ahead of the Aston Martins um, when they um, uh, they finally dropped out. But um, yeah, they had, it had 
the Testarossa had more opposition than some of the other cars on this list, you know, works Aston Martin, at least to start with before by the end of this era, it has less opposition. You could even argue that it's sort of seen some of that, that opposition off. Um, and it retires with uh, three Le Mans wins and three sports car championships, which is ahead of anything on this list. Um, the 250p, 275p, the reason I put them together is um, they were mechanically very similar. It was sort of basically the 275p was a bigger engine version. And in fact, the car that won in 1964 was was at one time thought to have been the same chassis as the one that won in 63, but with a bigger engine. I think Ferrari have subsequently admitted that there was some jiggery-pokery with chassis numbers, which used to happen quite a lot in those days when cars were crashed. Um, yes, um, but I think that shows you how close the two cars were related. That that, that, that there could be, you know, one car was developed into another, really. Um, and of course, in 1964, they did start to have a bit more opposition because, um, you know, Ford was there, um, which was with the very quick GTs. Unfortunately, they weren't they weren't reliable enough. Um, but they were also up against Ferrari's own even bigger engine car, the 330p. Um, and Nino Vaccarella and Jean Guichet uh, outlasted them as well um, to come home uh, to come home first. So, um, so effectively, one car's got two wins and one car's got three, which is a fairly unsophisticated way of choosing. Um, uh, and I thought the two fifty Testarossa should take it also because it's it's kind of one of the it's one of those sports cars from a great era of sports car racing. You think 50 sports cars, think D-Type, think DBR1, think Testarossa. I think they're the cars that, that certainly come to my mind. Um, so I thought it was slightly cooler and slightly more successful than the, than the, uh, than the later car. Yeah. Uh, w- w- one of the points in favour of the, the 250-275P uh, is John Surtees, because this is, this is John Surtees' time at Ferrari. Uh, and we can have another debate, which is not for now, perhaps, about where do you put John Surtees in the pecking order of all-time great racing drivers? Uh, I put him very, very high up. Uh, and uh, to, to uh, uh, not just at Le Mans, but elsewhere. I know he didn't win Le Mans with one, but he drove them at Le Mans, he put them on pole position. This is the sort of Ferrari you associate with John Surtees, uh, if you're not talking Formula One, but talking sports cars. Um, uh, and if you if you applied yourself, something to do in on a well, we're out of the winter now. Uh, on a cold winter's evening, is just look at the success that John Surtees had in Ferraris um, when he was a works driver and before and after he was a works driver. Um, he was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and so, uh, I'm inclined to put the the 250p and the 275p and the 250lm, which I see in the notes, Kevin. You mentioned the 250lm, which is really just a uh, a, a 250p or 275p with a roof on it. Oversimplifying it, but that's the same gist. And the 250LM did win. So should that not count? Well, yes, in you can. I mean, this uh, I had the 250LM as a separate entry at one stage uh, and decided to separate it off partly because. There's a brilliant piece, actually. There's a brilliant uh, one page on the official Ferrari website that covers the uh, 250LM uh, <laughs> where it is described um, as the Berlinetta version of the 250P prototype sharing the same chassis and running gear with just minor modifications. Now, bearing in mind the the absolute fight that Enzo Ferrari put up back in the 60s to try and get it homologated as a GT car and argue that it was a continuation of the GT Berlinetta GTO line, I thought that was quite a remarkable thing. I mean, if Enzo Ferrari was still alive, he'd have that page taken down immediately, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that... Uh, I, I, for me, the you're you're slightly. I, I completely agree with John Surtees, by the way. I mean, just just in just uh, at Le Mans, where yeah, he should have won in '63. The car caught fire coming out of the pits, and he did put the 330p on pole position in 1964, ahead of the Fords and ahead of ahead of all the other Ferraris. I completely agree with Sir with your comments on Surtees, and actually, I think it's a great shame that he didn't he didn't stay at Ferrari not just from a he probably would have won another Formula 1 world championship but can you imagine him in a in a P4 Ferrari uh, leading the line against the Fords that that would have been quite something I should think in the early laps yes he never drove a P4 no. he drove a 512 later on but he didn't drive a, a, a P4 no. yeah, he'd already walked out on Ferrari but, by then for, for obviously the nonsense but before Le Mans in 66 if you took Moss out of the equation the Testarossa ends up potentially being a four times sports car championship winner 
would it would the, the other Ferraris have retired without Moss's early laps? I think that's a more debatable point. Um, but I think almost the Testarossa gets bonus points because it didn't have the best sports car driver in the world at the time and still was very successful. Uh, I think particularly the, the 1959 version looks great because it's had its wins. That's probably why you put it at the top, is it, Kevin? Yes, well, the, uh, yes, it is. And actually, the thing I found interesting about this list is that when you think of a great sports car name, Ferrari comes to mind immediately. But when you're thinking of the greatest sports cars, there isn't an obvious Ferrari that comes to mind. We did this last year for part of the Autosport 70th celebration, and there wasn't really a Ferrari that was that was a serious contender. It was all about you know C type or D type. GT40, 916, 956, um, Audi R8. You know, there wasn't a Ferrari to get in there. Gary Watkins heroically tried to get the 333 SP in the list, which was just, I mean, fantastic car, but I mean, ridiculous suggestion. Uh, Gary did a very good job of trying to make it get get through to the final, but, but sadly failed. Um, but there wasn't an obvious Ferrari. So I found picking a number one for this list um, really quite, really quite tricky. In the 1950s, Ferrari were the dominant sports car manufacturer and Jaguar was up, very much up there as well but it was uh, all about Ferrari, Maserati uh, and, and Jaguar and some of those 1950s drives that we've been talking about wonderful cars and, and I'm surprised that that uh, debate didn't end up with a, a prominent Ferrari the 333 SP well yeah I think part of it was because they had so many models Ferrari did so many models during that period during the 50s and 60s you have to concentrate um yeah, yeah. so it was you so that, although Ferrari or mass if you like scored lots of success it was it was kind of spread out across lots of different cars and different models and um it was quite difficult to pick one that is the you know with Ford it's easy Porsche it was harder but that's just because they've had so many iconic sports cars over over an even and longer. Martin is easy too Aston Martin yeah I mean yeah exactly Aston Martin was really was really easy Jaguar was bit more tricky depending on whether you were leaning towards uh le mans or a kind of more open you know i think the c type is probably a bit underrated we're getting off piece here <laughs> but um uh but yeah so the yeah uh, the, the 250 tester so that's that's what i went for um but it didn't it didn't score uh, particularly highly in our debate last year for the autosport 70th that's that's kev's top 10 Ian, can I ask you for your thoughts on what you think of the job that he's done overall? I mean, this is the order it's going to go in the magazine uh, this week, but can we use this podcast to uh, to, to amend any uh, any glaring errors you think he's made or, uh, or or commend him, in fact, on some of his choices? All these are matters of opinion. I mean, crikey, we don't own the cars. We haven't raced the cars. Um, so this is just the views of, of enthusiasts who have watched them over the years. Um uh, and as I think I've said, as we've gone through, there are one or two cars I think are in the wrong place. But the, it's partly what you saw in period. I mean, it goes to Goodwood or the Silverstone Classic or the Le Mans Classic these days. You'll see one or two of these cars uh, racing. But I'm old enough. But, you know, I'm not going to see things in the future, obviously. But I'm old enough to have seen um, the Ferraris in their heyday racing in the Sports Car World Championship. Uh, and the GT cars, uh, and the 250 GT Berlinetta remains my uh, joint favourite with the P4. So I put them at the top. I, I, I think if I had to, I think if I had to buy, well, I, I might put the 312 PB ahead of the Berlinetta. I think they'd probably be my top three. So in fact, our top, our top cars, Ian. None, none of them won Le Mans, which is why they couldn't top this list. Um, there you go. That's the difference between um, subjectivity and objectivity. I think I think Ian makes an interesting point about what the philosophy of Le Mans should be. Um, and Ian, Ian obviously feels that it should be GT-based. I've had this very debate with, um, with my predecessor, Ed Straw, as well, because I think he would probably agree with you, Ian. Um, up for me... Uh, sports prototype there should be a sports prototype class most of my favorite sports cars and sports cars are my first sort of how i got into motorsport really you know going to the thousand k's at silverstone in group c era you know for me a a, a proper racing car is, is a big powerful sports prototype with a roof that's that's kind of my start point and we go from i can i can, I can lose the roof in some instances such as the dbr1 um, but for me the sports prototypes have kind of always stolen the show a bit even though uh, i've had a huge amount of pleasure with the gt cars and in fact i've covered gt cars at, at le mans as well um, but i think le mans would lose something if it was if it was gt only even though i completely accept the argument that um 
that was the whole point of it in the first place was to develop road going technology. Yes, I think every car that was that won Le Mans before World War Two was a road car with some improvement for racing purposes, but uh, essentially road cars. Um, and the Ferrari 166 um, was probably getting closer to being a racing sports car than uh, a road sports car. The majority of those Ferraris probably were sold to Americans to drive up and down boulevards. I know they're not going to be fast if they get the GT cars by comparison with the prototypes, but aren't the speeds getting a bit too high? Well, I think, I think that the hypercars are designed to bring that back, aren't they? In fact, they're probably going to have to slow down the LMP2 cars a bit to, to make it make sure that the, the class is still distinct. So, yes, I think that the cars... I mean, if you look at the you know, the pole lap record now is within about a second, a second and a half of the fastest ever lap of Le Mans set by a set by an R17 long tail in 1971, and that was without chicanes on the Mulsanne or the Porsche curves. So that shows you how quick the, how quick the LMP1 hybrid cars had got um, that they could do basically the same lap time, but with a whole extra element of track to do, uh, and that's the march of progress, isn't it? I mean, just you know, GT1 in the GT1 in the late nineties, those cars were. I mean, the McLaren F1 GTR. I think you would you could say that was a genuine road car that Gordon Murray was persuaded to turn into a sports car. Um, and so that was that was a, a, a genuine GT car. Then Porsche kind of took the mickey a bit with the 911 GT1, and then Mercedes completely drove the car through the rule book with the CLK, and then it got ridiculous. The Toyota GT1, uh, fantastic car. Porsche 911 GT1 98. I mean, they were almost Group C cars and fantastic to watch, and I think a lot of people loved that era, but there's no way in hell they were based on road cars, apart from the limited run they did just to... Uh, just to, to, to make sure the cars were legal. But it should have been possible to write regulations that ensured that the Mickey wasn't taken in the way that it was, and that uh, a car like the McLaren F1 was acceptable, uh, but some of the Mickey-taking Porsches and Mercedes and Toyotas shouldn't have been allowed in, but the rules enabled them to take part. And also Porsche took the Mickey with the 962, didn't they? The, the, the Dower. The Dower. Absolutely. Dower. But then some of those cars were fantastic. I mean, most of those GT cars in the early 60s were a bit of a Mickey-take with the homologation one way or another, the Project Aston Martins, the GTO, um, the various bigger versions like the LMB, the the, the Cobras. But th- but thank goodness, because they're what fantastic cars they are. Quite rightly, I think, commenting on the way that Ferrari played the regulations to try and homologate things that weren't homologatable. Um, but Aston Martin did exactly the same thing, didn't they? Uh, little, as- little aside, um, my dad, as a 17-year-old, wrote into Autosport, explaining the difference between the prototype uh, between the different dp prototype aston martins and somebody from aston martin wrote back telling me he was wrong and history is now recorded that my dad was right and that aston martin were lying so you can go and i just came across them looking through old all sports as i obviously do when i have spare time and i found yeah found the letter from uh, from my dad in one issue and then a response in the next one so there we go are we allowed to mention cars that aren't in the box then like the, the f40 is a, a wonderful Ferrari, it's a, not of the absolute modern 21st century era, but it's not that far before then. Um, and I suppose I'm probably influenced by A, seeing the blue car that Michel Ferte drove at Le Mans, um, and it, it just looked absolutely sensational. Although the, it's how the Italians can make an aerodynamic shape look really attractive. Um, and the fact that it was blue actually made it more attractive. Although Silverstone one year, the classic, we had 25 F40s, all red, as most of them are, um, doing parade laps. Uh, and the car is just an amazing, amazing car. But it doesn't qualify and Kevin will tell us why for the top 10 because it never won anything at London. I mean, not just didn't win anything. It was it, it struggled to get to the end. Really, it was a it was a and also it was it was thumped by um, by the McLaren F1 in in the BPR GT races. Although I have to say, uh, I used to watch those races, and I was always a bit of a fan of Jean Marc Gounon in his F40. One race in particular stands out. I think it was at Nagaro where he um, on the on the first lap he somehow ended up in the in the barriers 
uh, and and uh, they got it dug out and he came within a few seconds of hauling the car back to win at the very end. It was a really exciting race. So, no, definitely, the F, if it was top 10 coolest Ferraris, I would I would definitely put the F40 in. So I'd agree with that. The only other car I think that deserves, deserves a mention uh, before I let Alex wrap up, really, uh, and I imagine it's not going to float Ian's boat because it's not a very attractive car. Not as a, I think it was as a, ra- a road car, but not as a race car. And that's the 365 GTB4. Um, which was a genuine GT car, uh, although the first time it ran at Le Mans, it had to run, it didn't run in the GT class, but in 72, 73 and 74, it did win its class. Um, a very successful GT car in the early 70s after, or as Ferrari lost interest with the sports prototypes. Um, and that very nearly made it uh, into the list as well, just on, on success and impact really. But it is a bit of a, the race version was quite, I'm looking at a picture of one now, it's quite a, it's quite a thuggish looking car. And someone rather unkindly, someone rather unkindly pointed to, pointed out to me that it has Rover SD1 lights, which is a bit unfair given that it predated the SD1, but I can kind of see what they mean. <laughs> well, guys, I mean, I could listen to your, uh, your refined and expert debate and conversation all night i really i really enjoy this sort of style that we do and um, but we must uh we must glad you said that alex thank you very much yeah good good well thank you very much Ian, for coming on the podcast today thank you as well kev uh also for doing the top 10 i imagine that was uh quite a labor of love let's put it that way it, it um, took longer than they normally do i thought yeah i can as soon as the announcement was made i was like right i'm gonna do a top 10 them on i emailed ian i emailed my dad i emailed gary watkins and then weeks passed as i read old reports and looked at books and oh i got completely consumed in it it got ridiculous but there we are excellent excellent right well guys thank you very much and uh, obviously thank you to everybody listening along that's our podcast for today but just before we go here's what you can see right now on autosport plus there's my bahrain grand prix driver ratings lewis duncan asks whether the MotoGP season opener hinted at ducati's true MotoGP leader while Jonathan Noble's weekly column explains the stark challenges Mercedes now faces in trying to upgrade its new Formula 1 car. New Autosport Plus subscribers who sign up today can use the promo code PODCAST during checkout to save 50% off their first payment. Just go to autosport.com slash plus and click sign in at the top of the page, then use the promo code, which again is PODCAST, for that 50% discount. Thanks for listening today and we'll be back soon. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network.